Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 51 of the Atlanta Man Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Rogers, and on today's episode, we have a lot to cover. Um, I did not have an episode last week as I was uh, had some traveling to do, so I wasn't able to record, so got about two weeks' worth of stuff to talk about here. Um, so kind of got to fly by it, very busy with the Hawks as they got eliminated from the playoffs by the Miami Heat. The Falcons had their draft. So we'll talk about that in a second. And the Braves had their best player return to the field. Ronald Acuna Jr. is back for the Braves, as uh, we'll get into that on the back end of the show. But first, we'll knock out the Hawks and um, the end of their season that took place last week against the Miami Heat. They lost the series in five games to Miami. I covered game one on the last podcast I recorded, but games uh, two through four, or two through five rather, I was not able to cover yet. So talk about those now. Um, game two was a game that the Hawks were very competitive in, but um, some turnovers by Trey Young really, really did them in, I think. He had 10 turnovers in the game, and that is just not very Trey Young-like as he was for a lot of the series. And, um, yeah, kind of cost the Hawks the game there. But a game that they were much more competitive in than game one as they uh, go down 0-2 in the series in that one. Game three was the one game the Hawks won in this entire series, and it was um, an incredible game. I got to say, the Hawks gave up a 21 to nothing run in the third quarter of this game to Miami. And it looked like they were dead in the water, about to go 3-0. But in the fourth quarter, they come blazing back. Trey had a big quarter, one of his, probably his only good quarter of the series, maybe. Um, Bogdanovich was very good offensively. DeLon Wright and Yeka Kongwu were making huge plays uh, defensively uh, throughout the second half of that game. They really kept them in it, and it was a huge, huge win for the Hawks. And um, one that was a very exciting one at that. It was a blast to watch that game, and, uh, you know, the, the emotion swing of them being down so much. I think they trailed by as many as 16. They were down by 14 with nine minutes left, and that whole 21-0 run, um, it seemed they were dead, and the series was as good as over if you go down 3-0. And uh, they were able to come back from the brink there and um, win Game 3 in a dramatic fashion. Trey Young had the game-winning floater. Jimmy Butler missed a uh, pretty bad shot at the buzzer, I think, and the Hawks were able to escape that one with a one-point win. Um, but that's where the fun ended in the series. They lost Games 4 and 5. Trey Young struggled mightily in both of them. Um, game four was an absolute blowout. Game five, however, looked like it could have been a blowout, but it ended up only being a three-point loss in the Hawks' final game of the season. And a huge part of why that that was only a three-point loss was DeAndre Hunter, who, if he didn't have this game, I probably would be bullying. I don't want to say bullying him, picking on him a little bit um, for this series because he played very frustrating basketball at times in this series. Even at some points in Game 5, which was, um, I think, his best game as a professional basketball player. I'm going to read his stat line out to you real quick. Uh, he had 35 points, 11 rebounds, which is a big number for DeAndre um, as he struggles rebounding, especially for a guy his size. He's a pretty bad rebounder, so him having 11 is definitely encouraging. He shot 52.4% from the field. He went 3 of 7 on his threes. He was plus 3 in the game, and he... Really, really had it going in the fourth quarter. <clears throat> Definitely had some good looks, courtesy of some interesting defensive choices on Miami's part. But still, you got to make the shots, and he did that. And, yeah, if DeAndre doesn't go crazy like he did in the fourth quarter. And he was solid before the fourth quarter also. But if he doesn't have this kind of game, 
the Hawks probably lose this game by 15 points or so. And he really kept them in it to the very end. Um, the Hawks had a big fourth quarter in Game 5 after giving up another big run at the end of the second quarter and to start the third. Um, but they were able to come back from the brink, really, and get back in this game in Game 5. And it felt for a second there was some semblance of hope if they were able to come back and steal another one like this. Um, if it could be very demoralizing for Miami, but they were uh, not able to do that. I do want to mention the last possession, I can say, of the game. The Hawks had two shots to score. Um, first time they don't even get a shot off, the ball gets knocked away, but luckily it, it was off, off, it came off of Victor Oladipo, who was, uh, very good in this game, and, um, he actually had to start the game, probably should mention this, kind of, I'm just kind of blowing through this, because it's kind of old news at this point, and just not too fun to talk about, but Kyle Lowry got hurt in game three, and he was out for the rest of the series, I believe he's going to be out against the 76ers too, and, uh, Jimmy Butler was ruled out last second in game five, as long, as well as Bogdan Bogdanovich for the Hawks, so both teams were, uh, bit shorthanded but especially Miami without Lowry and Butler. Uh, Butler had been the best player in this series far and away especially with Trey struggling so he missed this game. Um, like I said Victor Oladipo got the start for Miami but late in the game um, Hawks had a terrible terrible final possession of this one. Like I said they didn't get a shot off the ball got, got kind of got knocked away but it went out of Miami. They were able to get another opportunity and they didn't get a shot off again. So down three season on the line final seconds Hawks had two shots or two opportunities I should say to tie the game and they didn't even get a shot off either time it was an absolutely abysmal offensive possession and that was just kind of the story of the series for the Hawks who were awesome offensively all year and they really only had one game in the series where they were even like at their normal level offensively in this game or in this series and yeah, that, that's just kind of the main thing in, in this one. I think the Hawks actually kind of played better defensively in this series than they did for most of the season. Um, some of that is Miami's injuries, and they're just not the greatest offense ever. I'll say that even at full strength. Um, the one game I'd say that they really kind of ran wild was the game Jimmy Butler ran wild in game two where he had 45 points. But other than that, like Miami just didn't really have a ton of offense going into the series. I thought Bam Adebayo was below average by his standards offensively. Um, Tyler Hero got some of his buckets here and there, but he wasn't uh, fantastic on the whole. Uh, Duncan Robinson, he um, he had the big game one, like I mentioned last last episode. But other than that, he was kind of MIA in this series, honestly. So yeah, this, this Heat defense was not really um, uh, a huge, huge offensive threat all year. And they kind of showed down this series, but still, their defense was really, really good. I want to give them some credit for how well they... Um, guarded Trey Young in this series, especially guys like Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry at times when he's not just being an absolute pest and embarrassing the game of basketball. He he obviously can play well defensively. Caleb Martin had some okay moments, but also was um, kind of bad at times. But I think Gabe Vincent was the guy that gave Trey a lot of problems. Um, to be honest with you, he was playing very, very, very consistently in your face, aggressive defense, kind of Miami's whole team play style as a whole and it'll be interesting to see how long they can keep up that level of intensity throughout these long playoffs but yeah I do I do have to give them credit for um Trey's struggles which we'll get into now um Trey was really 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 bad in the series especially by his standards and if you just kind of show me Trey's numbers in the series and his kind of usage and how much the ball is in his hands and you just show me these numbers and don't tell me who it is He's just a negative. He was a negative overall in the series for the Hawks, um, and I think Trey knows that. He definitely knows that. 
And like I said, credit to Miami, but Trey just has to be better. Um, here are his numbers on the series. Averaged 15.4 points per game, which is about half of what he averaged in the regular season. Six assists per game, which is fine, but Trey averaged around eight to nine this season. He shot 31.9% from the field, which is well below his season average, and 18.4% from three, also well below his season average. And the one stat that I want to mention that was just kind of the <clears throat> overall, over, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The overall most important one, I guess you could say, of the all-encompassing is what I was looking for, is that Trey's turnover to assist ratio. He had 31 turnovers in this series with 30 assists one more turnover than assist and um just for reference i can pull up trey's regular numbers on the year of his turn total turnovers to assist and like when trey's the way trey's game is designed and the way that he plays the game that kind of stuff just can't happen it's like i mentioned in um game two when he had the 10 turnovers and he actually shot, shot the ball like, decently well in that game like it just can't happen he can't have 10, 10 turnovers in a game this year he averaged four per game and um, average, let's see, 9.7 assists. So he, ever, he actually averaged pretty much 10 assists in four turnovers a year, a game this year. And he came into the series and average, or in an average, had 31 turnovers and 30 assists. Or like his totals this year, 303 turnovers and 737 assists. That's a very good ratio for Trey. Um, he actually led the league in turnovers, but when you're passing the ball that much, it's uh, to be expected. So, but um, yeah, like, that just can't happen. He played very bad. Um, some of it's just him playing bad, and I think a good bit of it is Miami was awesome defensively in the series. They lived up to every billing they had of being a great defense in this series, especially on the perimeter with Trey. They were able to contain him. Um, like I've never seen Trey get get contained like this before um, in his career. It just hasn't happened, especially over a five-game sample. Like He's definitely had his duds of games, even this season where he's been incredible and is an all-NBA player, in my opinion. Um, he definitely had games where he just has a dud and will shoot very poorly and only have like 13 points and you know turn the ball over a little bit. But for them to do it that consistently and Trey just not being able to figure anything out against his Miami defense, it's, it's impressive. I, I'm not going to lie. It was a very impressive um, defensive performance from Miami. Um, Trey is usually very good, especially in playoff series. We saw this last year of seeing what the defense is giving him and making adjustments and working around it and figuring things out. That just didn't happen in the series, and I thought it was going to, honestly. I didn't know if the Hawks were going to win the series, but I knew after like game one and game two where Trey struggled, I was like, all right, you know, Trey's going to figure something out here. I don't know if it's going to result in the Hawks winning the series, but he's going to figure something out. He's going to get his own and like he like he normally does. And I guess you could say he kind of did that in Game Three, but even before, like the later in that game, he he struggled um, pretty badly in a game in Game Three before the fourth quarter. And then Games Four and Five, he was just kind of uh, non-existent and a true negative to the Hawks. So he just never figured anything out, which is very surprising to me because Trey's a very smart guy, a very smart basketball player. He's what probably, if not the most craftiest, one of the most craftiest players in the league with the way he can pick apart a defense with his passing and his shooting. And he never figured that out in this series. And it's just kind of, it was jarring to watch. And I'm sure he's going to work as hard as anybody this offseason to kind of correct these things. But, you know, Miami's kind of laid a blueprint down for maybe how to contain Trey. I mean, most teams do not play uh, the level of intensity that the Heat play at. I mean, they're running full court presses and middle of games like they, they did at times this series. Um, so most teams don't operate at that level of intensity. 
But um, there's definitely a, somewhat of a blueprint laid out for uh, defending Trey Young that was made by the Heat in this series. And I'm sure Trey's going to go back and look at all the tape and make his own adjustments, so I wouldn't worry about it. But, man, it was just really, 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 really jarring to watch this series and how Trey played for a majority of it. Um, so, yeah, <clears throat> that's pretty much all I got on the Heat and Hawks series. Um, we'll get into some offseason stuff um, later on the podcast uh, in the next coming weeks. The draft is coming up. Um, so we got, we got a little bit of time before the season ends for we really get deep into offseason stuff. That'll um, happen when the finals are over, the whole NBA season is over the whole, as a whole. So we'll get into the draft stuff, free agency, trades, all the stuff that um, the Hawks need to do this offseason. And I'll say this, the Hawks are going to look different this year, or th- different next year, rather. Um, the only There is one guy that I am firmly confident in that is not getting traded, and that is Trey Young. If anybody else got traded... I wouldn't be shocked, and that's pretty crazy to say because there's some definitely some notable guys like John Collins, Clint Capella, even guys like Akongwu, who I, I think is very unlikely to get traded. Um, if the right deal presents itself for the Hawks, I would not be completely stunned if they pulled the trigger on a deal like that. Um, so, yeah, the Hawks will look different next year, to be sure, but we'll get into that down the line later. So we will now move on to the Falcons, who haven't talked about them in a bit. I meant to do some kind of draft preview for them, but... Just kind of escaped my mind to be honest with you, and forgot to do it. Um, so we'll get into all their picks now. Some I'll get into some more than others, obviously, as they had some um, not very consequential picks at the back end. I'd say that um, they're just not important as the higher draft picks, obviously. Uh, so we'll start off in round one. The Hawks had, or not the Hawks, the Falcons had the number eight overall pick in this draft. Um, there was some rumblings of what they might do if they want trade down if they are going to take an edge rusher offensive line wide receiver um, maybe even a quarterback as there was some real Malik Willis top 10 hype um, a few weeks ago obviously it didn't happen but the one guy that I saw in mocks more than any other player um, that was projected to the Falcons was Drake London and that is exactly who they picked so looking back on it I guess it was kind of a uh, clear that they were going to take Drake London, and there's definitely some guys that make these mock drafts that had some real intel of what the Falcons were going to do, and they were correct. Um, I, I saw some people have some issues with this pick. I saw some people that are kind of in love with this pick, and they like Drake London a lot. Um, his main NFL comp right now is Mike Evans, and if he turns out like Mike Evans, this is obviously a slam dunk. Mike Evans is awesome, um, but you can't really like pencil that in immediately. Really, even like Mike Le- Mike Evans' level of production, like as a rookie, he was a thousand yard receiver as a rookie. Um, maybe he will do that. He's he's going to get a lot of targets this year, uh, as it's really only him and Kyle Pitts as true targets and true threats offensively this year. Um, but yeah, my main thing is with drafting in general in the NFL is drafting. I I I don't take into account positional value as much as most teams do when it comes to or as as much as most people do when it comes to teams that are rebuilding like the Falcons are a lot of people were upset because the Falcons didn't draft on the lines um, defensively or offensively and I get that there's definitely some good guys available and they did address those issues somewhat later on the draft we'll get into that in a second but my main thing is draft good players and I think the Falcons drafted a really good prospect in Drake London Um, there's also some more discourse about other wide receivers they like better than Drake London, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, Jameson Williams. I get all that. I think Drake London is a good prospect. I'm not going to sit up here and act like I 
grind the mocks and I watch all the tape on these guys. I've seen I've seen Drake London play. He's a very big guy. He can go up and get the ball. He's not super fast. Doesn't have a ton of breakaway speed, but he is a guy that can make some space when the ball is in the air and go up and make catches over corners. He's not kind of like the uh, the he don't have the burners type of guy like uh, Tyreek Hill or like Jalen Waddle, some of the quicker wide receivers in the league. He's definitely more of a, uh, a guy that's going to be able to stick to him better, but he has a really, really good ability of going up in the air and getting the ball and making space away from wide receivers at the at the point of the catch. So I think I think it's a good pick. I do. I'm not, I'm not um, <clears throat> as upset as some people were. Um, maybe the only way I could be upset is if like one of the big edge rushers dropped, like Thibodeau or Aiden Hutchinson. Or even Trayvon Walker, who ended up being the number one pick, which I don't even—that that would be one pick. If I was a Jaguars fan, I'd be kind of scratching my head, which is a little interesting. Um, but yeah, like if one of those guys fell and they took Drake London over Thibodeau or Ush Hutchinson, I would kind of be scratching my head. But there wasn't really that kind of guy there that slid super far down. Um, so yeah, I'm fine with Drake London. Um, I think he's going to be a solid wide receiver in the NFL at the least. I, I think his upside is that of a Pro Bowl wide receiver. Like I said, the Mike Evans comp is out there, and I see that for sure with him, and he definitely has the potential to do that. So, yeah, like the pick, draft good players, and I think the Falcons drafted a good player with their number eight overall pick in a position of need for them. So I'm happy with it. Move on to round two, and they had the uh, they had two second-round picks, um, one of them via the Tennessee Titans from the Julio Jones trade. So they're kind of reaping the benefits of that Julio Jones trade already, which um, I just, all right, brief tangent here. Um, Julio Jones got cut a while back by the Titans. I never talked about this. Um, people at the time saying that the Falcons got absolutely fleeced by the Titans. Uh, they did not. And um, just wanted to throw that out there. After the way Julio's tenure went in Tennessee, um, and especially how this uh, pick turns out from uh, Mon- from uh, the Titans, it's going to it's uh, it's kind of clear that the Falcons won the trade. But that's just a brief tangent, and I'm done with it now. Um, but Round two, number 38 overall, the Falcons selected an edge rusher from Penn State, Arnold Ebiketti. Um, <clears throat> heard about this guy a little bit before the draft. Obviously, with all the other big edge rushers of this class, like I said, Thibodeau, Hutchinson, um, Trayvon Walker, even George Karloftis, who got picked um, a little, a few picks ahead of him by the Chiefs. Um, he was kind of in the four, five, six range of the edge rushers in this draft, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this pick was able to look at a little bit of his highlights after we picked him. Um, and he looks like a solid edge rusher. That's all, all I can really say. Um, seems like good value in the second round getting him too. I think some people had him maybe going late first round too. So maybe getting a little bit of good value there in a position of need also. And I think um, Ebiketti is a good pick. And um, <clears throat> I definitely some of the Falcons need is good edge rushers. And uh, they did that right here. And they also got, it, uh, got another good linebacker later in the draft too that can kind of um, – help with the the kind of the pass rush situation um run stopping all that stuff even some kind of coverage with the two linebackers they picked and the next one the next pick was a linebacker like i mentioned his name is troy anderson from montana state gonna be clearly honest never heard of this guy before the draft unlike london and epic um so hopefully he's good that's all i really got on that one because i i have no idea who troy anderson was before the draft obviously didn't go to a very big school he went to montana state he's a linebacker Troy Anderson, be good at football. That's all I got on that one. Next pick, round three, 74th overall. Probably the most interesting pick of the entire draft for the Falcons. I guess you could say Drake London is, but um, this one might 
might be more um, of a uh, of a step in step towards the future than London. They pick a quarterback, Desmond Ritter from the University of Cincinnati. I like this pick. Um, pretty good value here in the third round for Ritter. As um, I've seen some people say that he is their favorite quarterback in the entire draft. Some people that I actually trust their opinions, and I think they're uh, very smart when it comes to the NFL draft, that he was their QB1. Granted, this is a pretty weak quarterback class. I will say that. Um, but I believe he was the second quarterback off the board um, after Kenny Pickett. Matt Corral might have went before him. I didn't check on that. But he was either two or three. Went, went ahead of Malik Willis, which when I was uh, – I'll keep it up with the draft on my phone, and the Falcons had this pick. I thought they were about to draft Malik Willis, but then it came across that it was Desmond Ritter. And um, I really like it, actually. I think he was very solid at Cincinnati. Obviously, they had the huge year last year, um, becoming the first Power 5 team to make the college football playoff. And I, I, I like Ritter a lot. Um, I think he's a pretty versatile quarterback, um, something the Falcons haven't really had, obviously, with Matt Ryan all these years. But he's a, he's a pretty good runner as a quarterback. He's made some really nice throws from what I've seen in Cincinnati. Um, he does have Marcus Mariota in the quarterback room with him. Um, I don't know what kind of promises the Falcons made to Mariota if he was going to be for sure the starter. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if Mariota started the season um, as the starter and they kind of wanted to ease Ritter into things. But I do think Mariota is like a pretty similar play style quarterback. I think the ceiling is obviously way higher for Ritter um, as a, at this point in Mariota's career. But Mariota coming into the draft in the NFL was the number two overall pick. He was a huge quarterback prospect and a, a huge dual threat quarterback prospect. So I think there are some things that Ritter could learn from Mariota, as I do think they have similar traits at the position. But, um, yeah, I like the value. I like the pick. Um, um, I don't think it's like a slam dunk that Ritter is going to be the guy in Atlanta for the next decade like Matt Ryan was. Obviously, it's really, really hard to find those guys. Um, but I think at the pick you took him, round three, the upside is there. The value is there, and it's a pick that I like quite a bit. So um, we'll see what the their decisions are with Ritter, if he's going to you know, come out of the gates being the starter or if they're going to ease him into things and let Mariota play ahead of him for a few weeks and then maybe bring him in like a quarter of the way through the season, something like that. But, um, yeah, definitely very interested to see what Ritter's got. I'm excited about it. And another thing about this draft, I think the Falcons just got way more fun in this draft. They're going to suck next year. I get that. But getting Drake London, getting Desmond Ritter, um, even Arnold Ebiketti, if he could have a good year on the edge and get some sacks. Um, they drafted a, a really nice running back at a BYU in the fifth round, um, Tyler Algieri. Algieri, I don't really know how to say his name, to be honest with you, but he was a really, really good running back for BYU last year. And if he could be good, that could be fun. I think the Falcons' fun factor just went up a lot, and for a team that's going to be bad, at least have some fun moments. And I think there's definitely the potential for that now with Ritter, London, and some of the other pieces they added in this draft. So... Moving on for the rest of this draft, going to kind of fly through the uh, last four picks. The other third-round pick they had was 82 overall, and they got D'Angelo Malone, outside Lambert from Western Kentucky. Didn't know this guy coming in the draft. Um, apparently he is very, very good pass rusher also at the linebacker position, so that's something that the Falcons definitely could use, and I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Ty Algieri, Al Algieri. I don't even know how to say his name. My apologies, Ty. Um, but he's a running back from BYU. 
Uh, wasn't familiar with him either before the draft, but um, I saw the numbers that he put up at BYU last year, and he had a crazy, crazy good season. Um, kind of put up video game numbers at the running back, running back position. And for a fifth-round pick, getting a solid running back that was good in college, I think that's perfectly fine, and that's where you should um, really take these kind of running backs who aren't like super high, crazy prospects, but um, guys that had a lot of success at college. So I like the pick. And then the final two picks, they were both in the sixth round. They got two Georgia guys, um, which is something the Falcons really never do, is draft players from Georgia. Um, But they do it back-to-back picks here. They got a guard, Justin Schaefer, um, from Georgia, and a tight end, John Fitzpatrick. So two Georgia Bulldogs coming to the Falcons, staying home in Georgia. Um, But, yeah, just kind of like a running joke for a while that the Falcons really don't um, ever have Georgia players. I remember when they got Todd Gurley, it was kind of like, oh, wow, the Falcons finally got someone from Georgia from all the Georgia fans out there that uh, keep up with the Falcons. But they got two Georgia guys in the sixth round here. Um, I don't have much on these guys. They're late-round draft picks. Who knows what's going to happen. Hopefully they can be good football players for the Falcons. That's what I hope for all these guys, and that is the point of drafting good players is that they can be good for your team. So that's all I got. That's the draft um, for the Falcons. I'm happy with it overall. I'm not going to give them a draft grade because I think those are stupid, but I like the draft overall. And I, like I said, I think the Falcons got a lot more fun in this draft, and that's something that they needed because they were on the trajectory of just being a miserable, terrible football team. They still could be terrible, but I don't think they'll be quite as miserable. So that's uh, my synopsis of the Falcons draft. So we'll move on to the last portion of the show, which is the Atlanta Braves portion of the show. Since we talked last, where did we end off at? Was it had to be after the Padres series? So since we talked last, the Braves have played the Dodgers, the Marlins, the Cubs, and the Rangers. They lost two out of three to the Dodgers, and Freddie Freeman's return—or not his return—I guess his um his first game against his old team it wasn't back in Atlanta. They were in LA, and his first at bat took Huascar Noah deep on an opposite field shot, which was. Just when that happened, I was like, oh, yeah, like, of, of course that happened. Um, Braves lost that game 7-4. to four. Brian Snicker used Sean Newcomb in high leverage. He got blown up, got DFA'd the next day. Ended up getting traded for Jesse Chavez, which is, like, kind of one point of news. Jesse Chavez back with the Braves. Playoff hero Jesse Chavez. Love him. Glad he's back. Sean Newcomb, gone, and I think that's a good thing. And uh, it's just kind of telling when – um about kind of telling about your guy's managerial skills when you have to uh, DFA the guy that he used in high leverage the night before. Just saying, not going to go on a huge tangent about that, but they lost two out of three to the Dodgers. Um, game game two, Max Fried absolutely shoved in this one. Um, a really good bounce back start for him. He's looked really good in his past two starts after kind of struggling to open up the season, but he was awesome against the Dodgers in his hometown. Um, seven innings pitched, zero earned runs, eight punchies. Maximum Freed was in full effect in that game. Braves won it 3-1. That was their only win against the Dodgers in L.A. Move on to the next series against Miami. They won game one 3-0. Kyle Wright continues to shove. He's been awesome. Um, we'll uh, do some Kyle Wright appreciation real quick. Looking at his numbers on the year so far. Currently leads the Braves in war with 1.3 baseball reference war. Um, through four starts, he has a 1.13 ERA, 24 innings pitched, 34 strikeouts, a 3 168 ERA plus, a 138 FIP. 
He has not given up a home run this year. He has been absolutely incredible. He's been the best pitcher on the Braves, maybe even the best pitcher in the National League this year. Um, I'm sure he's up there on the war leaderboards as a top five guy, um, especially among the pitchers. Kyle Wright has been awesome, and his breakout seems like it is legit, and um, he looks like he's going to be a huge, huge part of this rotation um, for the rest of the season. And um, so, yeah, good for Kyle Wright. He's doing awesome. But that would be the only Braves, or the only game the Braves won against the Marlins was the Kyle Wright start. Some bullpen blowups in games two, in game two, and they lost game three, four to five. And um, yeah, lost two out of three to the Marlins at home, which you don't like to do. But they did bounce back and um, win two out of three against the Cubs. And they got their best player back. Ronald Acuna Jr. returned during game three. Um, he went one for five, had two stolen bases. So pretty solid start for uh, Acuna as he had the single. Uh, the Braves took game three and won the series, uh, two out of three, their first series win of the year. Then they went to Texas, though, and kind of gave it back a little bit. They lost two out of three to the Rangers, who are definitely a better team this year, but they're still not very good. Um, Corey Seager continues to uh, just dominate the Braves. He had two more homers in this series in game three. I'm pretty sure he drawed like two or three walks. So he just kind of, the Braves just kind of stay away from that guy. Um, and, you know, you can't really escape Corey Seager if you're the Braves. As, uh, as we saw in this one, he's still the Braves killer. They won the they won game one six to three, but then lost games two and three three to one and seven to three. Um, Bryce Elder and Kyle Muller, who made his season debut, had some tough starts, and they both end up getting sit, sent down um, as the rosters get reduced from twenty eight to twenty six. But um, yeah, the, right now the Braves are ten and thirteen, still very early in the season. I'm not worried at all, but they do have a fairly big series coming up against the New York Mets. Um, the Mets are off to a really good start this year. They're 16-7, and seven, and the Braves have four games in New York. Um, they have a doubleheader on Tuesday. And, yeah, so this is about as uh, big of a series you can kind of have for the start of May, I guess you could say. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm pretty excited for this one. The Braves have lined up their starters. Um, their four guys. It's going to go Max Freed, Charlie Morton, Kyle Wright, then Ian Anderson game four. So they will have their dogs out there. They actually, Max Freer was supposed to pitch set or on Sunday, but they pushed him back to face the Mets, and that kind of cost them as they end up getting, or as um, Kyle Muller ended up getting knocked around by the Rangers. But um, I think the Braves are kind of told everybody that this is like a very important series to them by lining up their four starters like it's a playoff series against the Mets. And it is. I'm not going to lie. The Mets, they got a lot better in the offseason. They're playing very well out the gate. And if the Braves go to New York and take three out of four, and just kind of show them that they're still a little brother, that would be um, very cool and something that I would appreciate quite a bit from this Braves team. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, pretty pretty excited for this upcoming series. Excited to see um, Ronnie against the Mets. You know, he's still kind of easing back into things, so maybe he can uh, really get loose in the series against New York and uh, be Ronald Acuna all caps as he's still kind of easing his way back as he's played three of these four games. Um, he is in right field tonight after he DH back-to-back games against the Rangers. So he will be in the field leading off in New York. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to watch this series for the Braves. Like I said, there's no need to panic at all in this team. They're 10-13. and 13. According to baseball reference playoff odds, they have an 87% chance to still make the postseason and a 7% chance to make the World Series, or to win the World Series, rather. So, uh, yeah, they're still the most likely NL East winner, according to baseball reference. They have the highest 
um, postseason percentage even higher than the Mets, who are 16-7. and seven. Um, They're still one of the more favored teams in the entire league to make the postseason. No need to worry at all. Um, and if there's any proof of you needing not to worry about the Braves, it is last year's team. I'm not saying they should be under 500 at the beginning of August, but I'm just saying don't worry about the April and May Braves. If we get into June and the Braves are still below 500, I would say definitely not good, but still definitely not end of the world. But, um, yeah, that's all i got to say about the Braves. Big series coming up, and um, hopefully next week's episode we'll be able to uh, dig into maybe three out of four, maybe a, a four-game sweep. In, uh, in New York, a mopping, as they call it. So if we could we could get some of that action, that would be awesome. And really, maybe just light a fire under these Braves and they can just uh, run away with the division for the rest of the year. That's my that's my thoughts on that, and that's what I, uh, I really hope that happens. I really do. So, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. Um, if you made it this far listening, I really, really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another one. So uh, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next one.